All right, well, good morning again. We're glad you're here. We happen to be transitioning this morning to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. So locate the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're going to get to Joshua, Judges, and then the book of Ruth. Just a four-chapter little book, so it's easy to pass by right after the book of Judges, right before 1 Samuel, the book of Ruth. All right. This is a, a message called A Story of Love, Hope, and Redemption. The book of Ruth is a book where you are definitely going to find yourself somewhere in this story. This is a story where it's going to be hard to be in the stands. You're going to find yourself in the field. Maybe especially for some of you because of chapter 1. Because chapter 1 is real, rubber meets the road kind of life stuff. Where we're going to see Naomi, one of the main characters in the book go through a lot of tragedy, a lot of dark days, a lot of difficulty. Uh, life inevitably will throw these things at us. Um, it's just going to come. It's going to happen. And so this is the way life is. Uh, no matter what time you live uh, on the earth, you're going to have some trials and tribulations. So many of you know that Shane, uh, who's our worship director up here, got married uh, just in the last week or so. That was awesome. And many of you were part of that wedding, and thank you for supporting them. They're now on their honeymoon, having a great time. And uh, that wedding hit me uh, almost unexpectedly. Uh, for those of you who have known me for a long time, I'm not the most emotional person. I, I can be emotional, but I can hide it pretty well. But uh, when my son was going to get married, you know, I mean, the day had come, you do all this planning, and when the rehearsal ha happened here in the sanctuary, the doors opened, and... Natalie was going to make her way down and it just hit me and all the emotion hit me all at once and she was coming up with her dad and I was trying to instruct dad and Natalie to kind of, you know, move a little bit and I combined their names and called them Dadalie <laughs> and, and that's when I pretty much knew that I was in trouble. So, so I asked, I said, please pray for me. You know, this, I've done so many weddings but now, you know, it, it's just a different perspective. And I told my son, uh, who's my oldest, um, you know, I can be dad that day or I'm happy to do the ceremony. I I'll leave it up to you. What would you like? And he goes, Dad, I can't imagine anybody but you doing this. And so when they walked up here and the wedding happened and I was having trouble looking at him because every time I was looking at him, his eyes were tearing up and he was making me tear up and they were reversing it. And the strongest one of all of them was Natalie who doesn't like to stand in front of people and do anything. And she was a rock, and we were falling apart. So then we got news. Of course, they picked the hottest day of the year, I think of the century, to get married. <laughs> it was about 107 degrees. We got in the car that morning, and my car read hot as hell. <laughs> Find another location. No, actually, but it did say 120 degrees. Can you, I've never seen that. The, the suburban was going, please put me in the pool. I don't know what to do. So anyway, we got word during the ceremony that the power had failed in our neighborhood and we were holding a smaller reception in our backyard. No power. So we called Edison. We were scrambling. What time is it going to come? Maybe 5 o'clock. The reception was starting later that night. Well, it turns out that power did not come back on until 7 the next morning. So the reception was in our backyard. It was a hot day. But to the rescue came several faithful Christian brothers with generators. 
and we got generators going, and we had lights, and we had music, and nobody really even knew that we had a problem, and it was pretty cool. In fact, the only house lit up in the neighborhood that night was Pastor Michael's <laughs> house. Music was playing. It was a celebration. Anyway, life's up, ups and downs. Then uh, this last week, just a few days after the wedding, my wife, uh, many of you have heard, had to go through a surgery. They found a, a spot of cancer in my wife. And so she was scheduled to have a, a surgery. And the news is, is positive, And they were able to, to deal with it. But that same day, her mother was also having surgery. They were both at Corona Regional, mother and daughter, having surgery on the same day. So that's kind of the way that life can, can shift in a matter of hours. And so I ran a little bit back and forth. I got to visit my mother-in-law, got to stay with my wife. And she's, she's resting and recovering. And, and I'll say on behalf of her, thank you for your prayers. And we got a chance to experience not only your prayers, but lots of texts coming our way saying, we're praying for you, we love you. And the leader of the meals ministry, Michelle Morrow, calls me up and says, Pastor Michael, do you want meals? And I was like, no, I can cook. I'm good. And Michelle goes, if you don't receive Pastor Michael, how's everybody else going to learn? She pretty much rebuked me on the phone. <laughs> Praise God. Michelle, you did a great job. So I said, okay, Michelle, have people bring us meals. So we got, we've been showered with meals and it's been really an awesome thing. And I'll tell you this. One thing that I've learned uh, in several decades of following Jesus is that the body of Christ is a precious jewel. I can't imagine doing life without you guys. I mean, that's how awesome the body of Christ is. You guys are family, and uh, you've shown up. You know, I've been with you. Um, I'm going to try not to get emotional. I've been with you through a lot of the ups and downs and trials that you've gone through stood by your hospital beds, stood at cemeteries as we stood upon the promises of God together. And thank you that you stood with me and my family. It means a lot. So we appreciate it. More than I could say. So. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are so grateful to start a new book like the book of Ruth. It's a precious little jewel in the Old Testament, I think it's near and dear to everybody who's ever read it. And if they haven't read it before, it's going to become near and dear to them because they're going to find themselves in this story. And when we look at Naomi's tragedy in chapter one, but light begins to glimmer at the end of the chapter and we're going to find faithful Ruth and we're going to find Boaz, a type of Christ, the kinsman redeemer. We're going to find the line to King David through Obed and through a Moabite woman who finds herself in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. And just so many precious jewels that move from tragedy to triumph, only as you can do it, Lord. And we pray that our hearts will be open, that we'll even feel deeply. This is a story where we're going to feel deeply, and it's okay, because this is life, and this is how things go. And I pray that you'll take us where you want us to go. Make us who you want us to be, Lord. And change us from one degree of glory to another because we've been here together studying your most majestic and powerful word. Write it on our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, amen. The book of Ruth um, is a little book, as I mentioned, four chapters, just 85 verses in the Hebrew scriptures. Its position between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel is strategic in that 
it is showing the way to the line of David, who will be the second king of Israel, but who will be, of course, a type of the Messiah. The setting of the book finds itself mentioned in verse 1 when it says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, a a familiar place to all of us, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. So whenever you study a book, you often can get a historical setting by just reading the opening verse. And what we have is the book is set in the time of the judges. Now, scholars will say they don't know for sure who the author of uh, the book of Ruth is. Some people believe it's Samuel. Some people believe it's a later scribe in the palace. There are others who attribute the book of Ruth to a woman. And we just don't really have enough information to know for sure. The rabbis were convinced that it was Samuel, but we just don't have enough to go on. We do know the historical setting, though, was the time of the Judges. And if you just flip back a couple of pages, go backwards, go to the book of Judges, chapter 21. The the times of the Judges were a unique time in the history of Israel, and it was a dark time. It was a time of moral chaos, a time when there was no king in Israel. In fact, that, that line or phrase is mentioned several times. There was no king in Israel. There was a vacuum of leadership back in the day. And so there was a time of moral chaos, religious apostasy, and God raised up judges. And these judges were not like the judges that we think of today, behind a court bench with a black gown and a gavel. These judges were military heroes who served really in a local situation to try to deal with the enemies of Israel. You can think of Gideon and Samson. Uh, They are found in the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends this way, chapter 21, verse 24. It says, The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days, verse 25, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right, in his own eyes. It was a time of moral chaos, if you go back to the book of Ruth, and a time when there was a vacuum of leadership and a time when morals were becoming all about self. And I'm sure this will sound very familiar to those of you who have been watching not only American society, but society all over the world, where now morals are really determined by the eye of the beholder instead of an objective moral standard of God. And so what's happening now in the world is everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It seems the supreme truth anymore has to do with what you want to do and how it makes you feel and whether or not you're sincere when you're doing it. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is an objective moral standard outside of how you feel. When you hear scholars and and those who deal with philosophy talk about objective truth, What they mean is that truth is truth despite how you feel about it. It's still true. God has things that he wants us to do that align with a moral code that move directly from him to his creation. We are made in the image of God. In fact, the Bible says that God has written his law in our hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15, and that our conscience bears witness to that law. That's part of what it means to be made in the imago Dei or the image of God. It means that you have a sense of morality. And that morality has been written on the very core of who you are. 
So that your actions either, your conscience will either excuse you when you do what's right or accuse you when you do what's wrong. God has put that into you. Now, scholars would say that it's possible to sear your conscience. There's some people that we look at these days and we say, does that person even have a conscience? We wonder. But for most people who are living everyday life, they have a sense of morality, and that sense of morality does not just come from your community. It doesn't just come from your parents. It comes from a God. And the time of Judges was a dark time in which the book of Ruth glimmers as light in a dark period of time when there was a lot of death and destruction and wrong that was done. And out of the gate we find this character that we're introduced to who is Naomi. Look at verse 2. The name of the man who went to this land of Moab with his wife is Elimelech. We'll talk about his name in a second. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of uh, his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. If we can throw up the uh, map for a second back there, Jim, for me. I want to just give you guys an idea of the geography that we're dealing with. So if you look at Judah there on the left of the Dead Sea, if you go up north from Judah, you're going to find the little village or town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem today stands about six miles south of Jerusalem. In order to go to the land of Moab, you have to go east, so you'd have to cross the Dead Sea. The Jews say it's more specifically, you should call it the Sea of Salt, because there is life in there, and it's not dead. But anyway, so you'd have to cross the Dead Sea and go to the land of Moab. Now, a lot of people ask the question, well, why did they go to Moab? Moab was about 70 to 100 miles from Bethlehem. In ancient times, when there was a famine in the land, a lot of people moved to Egypt. Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, went to Egypt in a time of famine. Later on, Jacob, with his whole family, will go to Egypt, and God will use a famine in the land to bring them to the land of Egypt, Goshen, more specifically. There they will go from 70 persons to millions of people, and then they will be persecuted and uh, dealt with harshly by the Pharaoh, and then God will bring that magnificent exodus that happens. But here they go to the land of Moab, to the Moabite territory, and you can see where that is. And uh, 70 to 100 miles, would, if you go back to the, the slide there, thank you, Jim. Um, 70 to 100 miles would be about maybe a week or more journey on foot. So they were looking for the, the easiest way and the best way to go to this uh, place where they could find food. There's a famine in the land. And interestingly enough, the famine is happening in a place called Bethlehem. It's two words you put together in Hebrew. Bet means house. Whenever you see B-E-T or B-E-T-H, it means house. And Lechem means bread. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He is the bread of life. He is the bread of God. Ironic, isn't it? that a place called the house of bread could not provide for this family. And there are a lot of scholars that believe that Elimelech with his wife Naomi, there's some sort of prominent family in this area. I understand that the uh, women's ministry did a study on the book of Ruth maybe a year or two ago. I don't remember how long ago it was, but I, I heard through someone in the office that there was some deep theological discussion going on among the women, specif specifically as it relates to the man Boaz, who will show up in the story. And the deep theological discussion was this. One of the ladies in the study was convinced that Boaz looked like Ricardo Montalban. 
And just so you know, so that's just, you know, that's what they were really wrestling with in that study. No, I'm just kidding, but little birdie told me that, that that was going around. Ricardo Montalban. It must be true, right? Boaz is going to show up later, but as I mentioned, every reader can find themselves in this story, and here's why. It says, Elimelech, verse 3, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. So I want you to imagine a family deeply rooted in the area of Bethlehem. If you think about the history of Bethlehem, Bethlehem is the place where Rachel died in Genesis 35, giving birth to Benjamin, the son of my right hand. It's where uh, Jacob had to bury Rachel. So it was known as a place of death. Bethlehem shows up in the book of Ruth and it's a place where there's famine, but then there's a time of redemption. There's a harvest and there's a kinsman redeemer and there's the line that leads from Obed to King David. Incredibly. It is in Bethlehem that David will be anointed as king of Israel. And of course it is in Bethlehem that the ultimate David will come. Jesus Christ, our deliverer, will be born on a Bethlehem night. A lot of rich history in the area of Bethlehem. And Naomi, who has now moved from Bethlehem to Moab, has been hit with a deep wound. Her husband passes away. We don't have any information. We don't know how he died. We don't know the circumstances of his death. We don't know what happened. We don't know if he got sick. We don't know if he lingered on a deathbed. We have no detail. The, the writer, the narrator is very terse in, in detail. He just simply says that Elimelech died. Elimelech's name means God is king or my God Yahweh is king. And it is interesting that he lives in a time when there is no king. There's a lot of irony in this book. He has to vacate a place where the king should be ruling and he dies under the watchful eye of his king. He is now dead and he leaves a widow behind. But not only does he leave a widow behind, but he leaves her behind in a foreign land. Naomi would have had little, very little choice but to go to Moab. That's what the patriarch said. That's what the father of the family said. We're going here. But then she goes there with her husband and two sons. And then, of course, tragedy happens and the husband dies. One writer says, the story of Ruth has been called a microcosm of Genesis. An important faith link between Abraham and David is established in this book. Ultimately, the trajectory of the story culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate revelation of God. He embodies the theology of Ruth. Ruth is really the gospel in miniature. In modern Jewish Bibles, Ruth follows the Song of Songs or Solomon because of the liturgical calendar of the Jews. And so um, this, is, this is where the story finds its setting. It's a dark time. It's a difficult time. It's the days of the book of the days of the judges. And then, of course, tragedy strikes and husband is dead. But it doesn't end there. Notice it says, uh, the two sons, and then verse 4, and they took for themselves Moabite women. As wives, with, with, uh, as wives, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. If you track the chronology of the book and track the story of the book, it seems that the story unfolds in about a 12-year period of time. And these two Jewish sons marry Moabite women. Now people ask the question, should they have married Moabite women? Was that wrong for them to do so? What Israel was told not to do was to marry the people of the town 
or, or the area of Canaan where they were going to go to conquer the land. So they were not to marry Canaanites or Girgashites or Perizzites or Norkites. That was a joke. Anyway. Or Coronites or Yorbalindites. No, just kidding. But there were certain people groups that they were not to marry. Moab was not included in that group. But Moab was told that they could not enter into the assembly of the Lord. And later in Ezra and Nehemiah, there seems to be a prohibition to marry Moabites and Ammonites. Yet they do this very thing. It seems only natural. You're in the land of Moab, and so you marry Moabite women. What do we know about the Moabites? Well, we do know this, that the Moabites came about as a result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. It's recorded in Genesis 19. Here's what happens. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife looks back. She gets caught up in the destruction. They go into a cave area, and maybe they think that they're the only sole survivors on the planet. So the two daughters get Lot drunk. They uh, give him wine, and he drinks too much. That was his own choice. He got intoxicated. The daughters were with him, and children were produced. And from that incestuous relationship comes Moab and Ammon. And that, those people groups became a problem for Israel ever since then. If you read the record of the book of Numbers and you read about chapters 22 through 25, you'll see Balak, a king, trying to use Balaam, a prophet so-called, to entice the people of Israel to be with Moabite women, to break the moral code so that God would curse Israel instead of blessing them. That whole theme is even picked up in the book of Revelation as Jesus deals with the churches. And so they, deal these, they marry these Moabite women, but then notice, then both Malon and Kilion, the sons of Naomi, also died. And the woman, her name isn't, isn't even recorded here. Her name, by the way, Naomi, probably means pleasant one or uh, sweet. The woman, the, the narrator doesn't even want to say her name, sweet, was bereft of her two children and her husband. Her husband dies in a foreign land, and now her two sons die in the foreign land, and she is left with herself and her daughters-in-law and nothing else. To be a widow in a patriarchal society, even if she was in Israel, would be tough enough. But she was in Moab in a foreign land. Very little fallback. Very little you know, community or familial structure to fall back on. What was she to do now? She had lost pretty much everything. My wife, uh, when she received some news about a medical report, had someone tell her these words uh, in the face of uncertainty and what's going to happen next and where is God in my pain and loss. Number one, she said, God allowed this. Number two, God is working. Number three, don't panic. Some of you need to hear that. God allowed this. God is working. Don't panic. But when we're in situations like this, it's hard to do anything but panic, right? I mean, we're, we're, we tend to get fixed on the problem instead of the author and perfecter of our faith. Instead of us praying, we find ourselves, you know, just uh, stressing over the details and we get into that what-if game. And the enemy often gets a foothold in our lives right there where we're worrying about every detail and every possible scenario. In fact, later on, um, Naomi will say, don't call me sweet anymore. Don't call me by my name. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Lord's heavy hand has been 
upon me. And so during this, this trek to Moab, tragedy strikes. And I don't know what you may be going through right now, but I'm sure that the twists and turns of life, they end up catching up with all of us. The New Living Translation says, Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone with her two sons and her husband. Just picture for a moment this bereaved widow with a triple tragedy. Her husband and her two sons are dead. All the males in her life, all that she would depend on for financial support and strength and protection, gone. Ripped away. When we uh, feel like life is out of control, when we, don't, when we can't see plan A, B, or C, when we can't see what God is doing, when we're wondering, God, are you on the throne? Man, life, life can get hard. She lost everything. She was bereft of her children. And the question lingers to the reader, is there any future hope for this woman? I know Jeremiah 29, 13 says, I will give you a future and a hope, but is there any hope for her? Will she ever recover? Scholars believe that uh, Naomi is probably in her mid-40s right now, her daughters-in-law probably in their mid to late 20s. A woman in her mid-40s, especially in a foreign land, what is she to do? Well, then she arose. Look at verse 6. She picked herself up, is kind of how I read this. She got up off the, the mat with her daughters-in-law, that she might return. A key word in our whole uh, study of chapter 1 is the word return. It's the word shuv. I'll tell you about it in a second. That she might return from the land of Moab, for she heard, she had heard in the land of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. She heard, probably through someone in a caravan, that in her hometown that she departed from, the Lord had blessed. The famine had uh, given way, and now... There was, there was a blessing. There was food to be found back in the house of bread in Bethlehem. And can you imagine being her at this point? And, you know, we all go through that woulda, shoulda, coulda stuff like, man, should I have stayed in Bethlehem? Uh, is the reason that this is happening to us as a family is because we decided to go from Israel and cross over into the territory of Moab with their pagan deities and their, their different construct? Is this God? saying, you did the wrong thing. Zap, zap, zap. Husband and son's dead. You know, we, we go through that. We ask questions. We know that God can discipline at times. And so we're wondering, well, did I do the right thing here? Is this why this is happening? Questions, I'm sure, flooded her heart as they tend to flood, uh, flood ours. But every story of triumph has some tragedy to overcome, folks. The sweetest victories in life don't come when everything's easy. They come when the odds are stacked against you. The greatest stories in Scripture of faith, standing at the edge of Red Seas, at the, uh, looking up at walls that are too big to, to, to deal with, looking at giants in the land, that's when your faith is going to be tested. That's when you're going to have to make a decision on who you're going to follow. And so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The word return is repeated in verse 7, and it's the word shub or the word shuv. For the people of Israel to see the word return, it would be the idea of repentance. Repentance is a U-turn on the road of life. You've been going your own way away from God and you do a U-turn and you come to God. That's what it means. 
The word shuv in the Hebrew picture language means to burn the house. Ancient armies would come in to a town. They would take that town. They would take captives from that town. And in order to make sure that they knew they had nothing to come back to, they would burn their village, put the people on the top of a brow or a hill, burn their village in front of them to say, you have nothing to go back to. The house is burned. You belong to us now. You are our captive and our prisoner. Shuv has the idea of burning the house. It means I am not going to leave anything to go back to. In the Greek New Testament, the word repent is metanoia. It has the idea of changing your mind, changing your heart, changing your actions. It has the idea of saying, I'm going to burn the old stuff and not go back. I'm not going to leave something to go back to because my intention is not to go back to my sin. Amen? My intention is not to go back to my old ways, not to leave something there that I can uh, go back to again. I'm going to burn the house. John MacArthur says, The pleasure of sin is brief while the sorrow it produces lasts. The sorrow of repentance is brief while the joy it produces lasts. And Naomi got up, and her daughter-in-laws, to their credit, were with her. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, they'd probably traveled on the road for a little way. Remember, they had a long journey ahead of them. And and she had a moment. She broke the silence in verse 8. She said, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Normally, it would be said your father's house, but your mother's house may imply you need to get married again. May the Lord deal kindly with you. This is the, the Hebrew word hesed. May he show his loyal love with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. I'm going, I'm going back to Bethlehem, but you need to leave. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but you probably have. I'm not exactly rolling in the blessings these days. I'm not exactly the best company. Being around me is probably not good luck for you ladies. I'm sure you want to get married again. I'm sure you want to have a life. Why would you ever go back with a person like me? You know, Naomi's faith is at a low. And we can understand it. When we get bruised and battered by the storms and bullets of this life that come our way, sometimes our faith is so low, we start telling non-Christians not to follow us. We, we, we may say, hey, maybe, go, maybe you should go back over there. I, I don't know you if you want to be around me. But she does acknowledge God. She says, may the Lord. She knows God is there. She knows he's on the throne, and that can be tough. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lofty. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had to wonder. Uzziah was a good king. Is God still on the throne? When I go through adversity and difficulty, is God still on the throne? And the message of Isaiah 6 is he hasn't moved. Even when you can't make sense of what comes to you in life, whether it's a loss or a diagnosis or a difficulty at work or a strained relationship that's really wearing on you, God has not moved from the throne. But Naomi still, her faith is low, and she says, Now may the Lord show you Hesed, may he show you his loyal love, but don't go on with me. Hesed is a beautiful Hebrew word. It means mercy and protection, refuge, It speaks of covenant love. It's the loyalty expected in marriage partners. It's the language of covenant. But many scholars believe that what Naomi is doing is giving a formal farewell. 
She's saying to the girls, you are free of your commitment to this family. It is noble what you are trying to do. And I appreciate you making the trek this far with me. But I don't think you should go on. And I don't want you to have to feel like you are committed to me. You were committed to my sons. You have supported me even in their death. But now I want you to go on. I want you to go back. We need to say goodbye. And she said, may the Lord grant you that you may find rest. Rest is found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. True rest in him. Each in the house of her husband. Go, you need to get married again. And then she kissed them, maybe like a European kiss, a formal kiss on the cheek. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. A very poignant moment. I mean, three ladies who had gone through loss together. When, when you can understand somebody else's loss, when you can resonate with them, man, the tears are deeper and I think more profound. And they just sat there on the road and cried together and cried and cried some more. I don't know how long the crying went on, but they wept together. And it reminds me of a scene in the New Testament where Paul says goodbye, goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He says, you guys are never going to see my face again. And he says, now I commend you to God and the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Parting company with those we love is hard and sorrowful. I mean, some of you have been on the mission field. You know, maybe you went on a a short-term missions trip to a place that you don't expect to return, and you met some beautiful people, some Christians there, and there was a bond, and then you have to say goodbye. And you're not sure if you're ever going to be back in that land again. You're not sure if you're ever going to cross paths again. In fact, there's some people that I've said these words to, if I don't see you on this side, I will see you in heaven. And I'm sure it was a moment like that for these women. We're probably never going to see each other again. And Naomi said, I'm going to kiss you. I love you. But it's time to go. And they said to her, no, verse 10, but we will surely return with you to your people. No. But Naomi said, return my daughter's Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? Verse 11, that they may be your husbands. Return, my daughters, go. I'm too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope, and if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's harder for me than for you. The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now, I want you to notice that even though Naomi has been hit with several blows of life, she does not deny God's existence. She has not become an atheist, and she has not switched gods. But she has said, God's heavy hand is against me. Now, we don't know all the details. We don't know all the reasons why this has happened to her, but we do know this. Her attitude is, man, God's heavy hand is on me. I'm going to give you some common sense advice, girls. You need to go. Go back. Go, to, go back to what you know. One writer says her complaint is even cloaked in faith. But she says, I want you to go back. Forget about me. Start your life over again. Like Jacob of old, all things are against me. But Naomi didn't know what was coming. We who have read the book, we know bright times are ahead. Unexpected blessings are ahead. But when we're at that place... On the faith journey, and this book is about a faith journey where we don't know what's going to happen next. It's hard. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
Now in verse 14, we see that the ladies have come to the crossroads and Orpah is now convinced by her mother-in-law that it's time to say goodbye. So in a formal way, she kisses her mother-in-law, turns away and begins to head back to Moab. Interestingly enough, the name Orpah in Hebrew, many scholars believe means the back of the neck. And so when Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and turned her back to her mother-in-law and headed back to Moab, she turned the back of her neck, turned her face away and said, I'm going back to my old life. I'm going back to my old gods. I'm going back to what's familiar. I'm going to heed your advice. Goodbye, mom. But Ruth clung to her. Now when Orpah left, we get from some tradition that she started an afternoon talk show that was fairly popular over the last several decades. Yeah, you knew I had to go there, huh? Did you know, this is an interesting fact, that Oprah Winfrey was named from this character in the book of Ruth. She was called Orpah on her birth certificate. And through time, people were mispronouncing her name. So they were calling her Oprah instead of Orpah. And it stuck. So Oprah Winfrey's name comes from the book of Ruth. And it was either a grandmother or a mother in the family that was giving Bible names to all uh, the children that were coming along. It is interesting to me to think about the fact that Oprah Winfrey, even with her Christian background, has publicly on several occasions denied the Lord Jesus Christ. She is given, and you may be a fan of Oprah, but I'm just going to tell you the facts, she is given a platform for New Age practitioners. She, in one exchange that you can find on the internet, a woman calls her out and says, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And she, Oprah, questions that truth. And so no matter what you may think of her talk show or her benevolence over the years, Oprah has walked away in some measure from her Christian roots. Although I've seen footage of her in churches at times, I've seen her acknowledge that she's a Christian and yet turn her neck to the things of God. So we should pray for her. I don't know where she's at today, but I think it's an interesting fact that she was named for a woman that turned her neck away from following uh, Naomi back to Bethlehem. But Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. She would not let go. The Bible tells us we should fear the name of God, serve him and cling to him, Deuteronomy 10, 20, and swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God. He has done great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen, Deuteronomy 10, 20 and 21. It says in 2 Kings 18, 6 that Hezekiah clung to the Lord and did not depart from following him but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. And so Naomi responds to Ruth's clinging. And she says, Behold, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. There's still time. Return after your sister-in-law. You can still see her in the distance. You haven't lost the opportunity. Go and go now. Can you imagine being Ruth? You're at the crossroads of life, man. Your mother-in-law is telling you, Go, follow, follow her. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Some of your translations say God. The chief deity of Moab, even though Moab had a start with a connection to Israel, was called Chemosh. Some scholars connect Chemosh to Molech. 
One of the terrible things that the people who followed Molech did was child sacrifice to the, this false god. They say Chemosh was the leader of a pantheon of Moabite gods and the no normal common people did not believe that they could even get in touch with Chemosh. So they had to deal with lesser gods to get to this higher god. It was a place filled with paganism and social uh, conventions had changed and moved away from the God of Israel. And Ruth, think about Ruth now. She's at the crossroads. Everything that she knows, everything that she's used to, all the traditions that she has grown up, grown up with now, she's faced with, am I going to leave? Am I going to go to this land of Bethlehem? And as we watch Ruth go, Ruth is going to go with no promise. Abram, in the book of Genesis, had a promise. I will make your descendants as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. I'm going to show you the land. Go. At least Abram had a promise. Ruth had nothing. No promise on which to stand. She just simply walked by faith and not by sight. How many times we celebrate the faith of Abram who became Abraham. How few times we celebrate Ruth who without even a promise, knowing nothing of the God of Israel except what Naomi had shown her, which at this point was pretty low, decided to follow. She turned away from those gods and she said, 16, Ruth said, Don't, do not urge me or pressure me to leave you or turn back from following you. For... And this is one of the great statements of faith in the Bible. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. I will not go back to the false substitute gods of Moab. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. She'd probably never been to Bethlehem. She did not know what awaited her. She would be a foreign woman in a foreign land, widowed, trying to find a husband. Not easy stuff. And she clung to Naomi. That, brothers and sisters, is faith. Do you know that your faith is not going to be tested when everything's rosy in life? Your faith is not going to be tested when you can see plan A, B, and C, and the door is easy to select as light shines and angels sing over the door that you must choose. That's not faith. Faith is walking in concert with the Holy Spirit, not knowing even where the next turn is. Faith often comes to forks in the road where you'll be faced with, are you going to go back to what's easy, comfortable, and you're used to, but you know is wrong? Or have you decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. I would say to you that a lot of Christians in the modern age have not made up their minds. Where you die, I will die, 17. And there I will be buried. I will even be with you in death. Not even death's going to part us because where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me. And now she seals it with an oath in the name of Yahweh. Thus may the Lord do to me. And worse, if anything but death parts you and me. There's a great scene in the book of John Ironically, John 6, 66, Jesus has given a difficult teaching about his body and his blood. Most of the people misunderstood what he was saying there. And it says in John 6, 66, that many of the disciples after that teaching followed him no more. 
And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, do you also want to go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Have you gone back? You know, there's a lot of people who were at that crossroads and they followed Orpah back to the old ways and the old gods. But she says, nothing is going to part us. I've heard scholars say this is no, no less than Ruth's conversion. This is her saying, I will follow Yahweh and forsake all else. This is a commitment of geography, chronology, and theology, as one writer put it. She decided, and she said, you're not going to talk me out of it. I'm going where you're going. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Do you know, I've discovered something, and it's, it's found in the, the book of 1 John, but I think we all understand the concept. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. When I meet people on the street, and I'm not talking about hiccups in life where you're in between you know, going to church or you, you've had a physical problem or maybe even a hurt or wound, but when I find people who say they're Christians and are not yoked and linked to the body of Christ, it makes me wonder. Because I know we got rough edges, people. I know none of us in the church are perfect. But the love of God's people is one indicator that you've passed out of death into life. You love the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. And so she says, your people are going to be my people, your God, my God. And when she saw, verse 18, Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. She said, no more. She said, okay. It's time to go. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? Amos 3, 3. Naomi wasn't going to go alone, but now that Ruth was there, I'm sure she was cheered. It's kind of like when we get young couples in marriage counseling, we do everything to talk them out of getting married just to see their true commitment. <laughs> Usually when they sit down in my office, I say something like this. Don't do it! No, I don't do that. That's a joke. <laughs> marriage is a wonderful thing. But marriage will take everything that you are. Marriage will take every ounce of commitment that you can muster up by the help of God. Amen? Amen? Marriage is the school of discipleship. It is the test of loyalty. It is the laboratory of loyal love. And she said, I'm going. And so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is that the pleasant one, the sweet one? This indicates that maybe they had a prominent place in the city. But it may also indicate that when Naomi came back after some 12 years, she was a bit beat up by life. Maybe she came limping into town. And she, she didn't leave that way. She left with a husband and, and two sons, strong, strapping young men. And she came back limping and then nothing. No, no men with her. And the women were like, the city was stirred. Is that Naomi? Surprise. Maybe a little gossip. Most people don't gossip, you know. You know, most people don't. But, but do you think it was something like this? Is that Naomi? I saw a picture of her in the tabloids two weeks ago. It's hard not to look at those things when you're in the supermarket line. Right? Wrong. <laughs> Is that her? 
I wonder what she did wrong for God to beat her up in this way. She must have sinned terribly. You remember Job's friends in the book of Job? Great comforters are you, even his wife. Curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks, honey. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement, right? And they, they, they saw him at a distance and they didn't even recognize him and they lifted up their voices and wept together. Man, when we start making guesses about why people are going through what they're going through, we need to be careful. We cannot take the place of God and say, oh, well, if that person's going through this and that, oh, it's probably, well, they must have done something wrong. That's, I'm going to choose my words carefully. <laughs> that is wrong theology. Even back in the day, Jesus' own disciples did that. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born this way? And when Naomi limped into town, she said, 20, don't call me Naomi. Don't you call me pleasant. Don't you call me sweet. Call me Mara. For the Almighty, that is Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Man, this is when, when you don't want to hear it from people. You don't even want them to call your name anymore. I know I got a Bible name. Don't call me that name. You're not at a good place. He said, in fact, just call me Mara. Mara is a word for bitter. The idea of the word comes as we see the children of Israel whining after three days with no water. They find water, but the waters are bitter. They were bitter, therefore it was named Mara, Exodus 15, 23. And the people grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink? And the Lord showed him a tree, and the waters became sweet again. But, but this is what she says, call me Mara. She says, I went out full, 21, we're almost done. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me pleasant one? Why do you call me sweet? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. I left full. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Naomi. You left in a famine. I don't think you were carrying out baskets of bread when you left the house of bread. I left full. Maybe she means I left with a husband and two sons and now I came back with a big fat zero. Can you imagine Ruth standing there? Uh, hello. <laughs> I, you know, I'll, your people, my people, your God, my God, wherever you go, I'll die with you. Hello. But she couldn't even see Ruth out of the corner of her eye. She said, I've lost everything. I've lost everything that was dear to me. I've got nothing left. Don't call me sweet. The Almighty has afflicted me. One writer says, all things work together for good to those who love God. How often it is true, as the poet Cowper knew and sang, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Ruth is about to be grafted into Israel and about to become a woman who's in the line of the Messiah. Could Naomi ever have dreamed that she will get a child and a kinsman redeemer will come forth who is a type of Jesus Christ? So Naomi returned, 22, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to this most familiar place called Bethlehem. And what was it? It was the beginning of the barley harvest. Probably the spring. Maybe around the time of 
either the Passover season or Pentecost. And the Feast of Israel were times of reaping, times of joy, times of song, times of blessing, times of rejoicing. When does she show up? Here's the glimmer of light. Right in the barley harvest in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Do you remember the shepherds? It came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began to say to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. For in the house of bread, the bread of God was coming. And the angel says, I have good news of great joy that shall be for how many? All the people, including Moabites and everybody else. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll see a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. In the darkest of times, God's light still shines, and it shines brightly. Father, we are grateful for this little gem of the book of Ruth and grateful that Ruth's story, Naomi's story, is our story. And Boaz is about to come along. His name probably means something like strong. And he will become a kinsman redeemer, a type of Christ who will redeem back land, redeem back a bride. And a child will be born that will be in the line of King David. And the greater David will come from this line. Only you, Lord, can turn things around for good that seems so dark. And I pray that those who are holding on, maybe even by a thread this afternoon, Lord, would find hope in this story, find themselves there, and know that same God is their God. And he will lead them. And Father, thank you that you lead all of us through the ups and downs of life. And I pray that you'd be renewing faith in this room. I pray you'd wash over sweet saints that are hurting I pray that prodigals would turn around and come home. Instead of turning the neck, they'll turn to you through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you do a mighty work in our midst, in our souls, and in our hearts with your head and heart bowed if you've not met Christ. You don't know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You don't know if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. You're not sure your sin is forgiven. You have not de decided to follow Jesus. Decide today. He waits for you right now as the father in the prodigal story. You must, it must be something like this, and this is what you have to do. Lord Jesus, pray it right now that you come into my life. I'm sorry for my sin. I want to leave my old ways and follow you. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead to defeat death, and I trust in you and you alone for my salvation. I repent and receive you as my Lord and Savior. Please save me, change me, use me, God. Father, for those who are opening up their hearts, those who are crying out to you in prayer, may you bless your people. May you sprinkle your hesed, your loyal love upon them. May you give them peace and rest. May you strengthen their faith. I pray that in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.